This episode is part two of the Beautiful Facade series. If you haven't yet listened to part one, I suggest you hit pause and do so first. Now, on with the show. Reach Freaks. Thank you for listening to Invisible Choir. This episode contains sensitive material, including graphic depictions of violence or abuse against children, which some listeners may find especially distressing or traumatic. Listener discretion is advised. Look, you know what you told Miss Kyle? Hey, Huh? Oh, see what? She kicked me around. She kicked you in the skin? Can you show, can you stand up and show me how she did that? I can't. No, I mean, like, can you show me, like, was it with, um, like, was it with this? would later recall for police that Miss Jennifer told her to go upstairs and wait for her while she called 911, even though Jennifer intuitively knew that Layla was likely already dead. On the way to the hospital, Jennifer told her that Layla had died from choking on a piece of chicken, and soon after the tragedy, Millie began to open up, and the horrific truth was revealed. Millie and Layla were often dragged up and down the stairs by their arms. In fits of rage, Jennifer would also twist their arms when she was mad at them, but Jennifer was the only person to physically discipline the children, while Joseph would stand by and do nothing but observe. The children took too long getting dressed. After their baths, they were taken into Jennifer's room, bent over her bed, and beaten with a leather belt. Both of the children still had loop-shaped bruises on their backs, buttocks, and inner thighs at the time of Layla's death. Jennifer would also kick them between the legs if they moved too slowly or failed to do a task quickly enough. They were also beaten with a belt if they ever fell asleep in the car. Jennifer was very rigid in her schedule, and if anything interfered, there would be severe consequences. She had extreme expectations for toddlers and sought to control all aspects of their behavior, including when they slept and whom they loved. She expected behavior that most people would innately realize wasn't possible nor realistic from anyone, much less emotionally neglected children. She didn't see them as individuals with wants and needs and opinions. They were her accessories. They completed the picture that she wanted to paint of a happy and loving family, something she so lacked in her own childhood. But instead of creating it with unconditional love and praise, she instead chose to demand it with force. Just a few weeks after moving in with the Rosenbaums, Layla turned two. During a birthday party thrown by Jennifer, Millie was instructed not to sit with her Nana or to be overly affectionate. This was more than just a birthday party for Layla. It was Jennifer's coming out party as a mother. She not only invited Layla's family, but invited her own, in addition to friends, co-workers, and some of her powerful political mentors. Millie belonged to Jennifer now, she was an important performative prop in Jennifer's narrative of possessing a loving family while being the perfect political candidate. She couldn't allow Millie to show love or emotional connection with anyone else. It was a clear message to Tessa's family that they were now being phased out. Um, well, it was unusual. She wasn't all over me like she usually is. And she wouldn't even sit on my lap. And I said, what's the matter, Millie? And she said, Jennifer told me not to. And I said, why? I don't know. She just said Jennifer told her not to. That's all the information she gave me. Um, did you ever follow up with Jennifer about that? I did. I mentioned to her that, I, you know, Millie's seemed to be acting strange toward me and was there a problem? And she said, Oh, well, we had a lot of family members that came from far away to see the girls, and I didn't want her spending all her time with you and your sister. Jennifer told Millie if she told anyone about her spankings or abuse that she would be punished twice as bad. Later, it was believed that Jennifer singled out Layla because she couldn't speak up and couldn't ask anyone for help. Given Layla's young age, it's more likely she couldn't cognitively discern 
that Jennifer was a mortal threat the way Millie could. Two-year-olds aren't known for their compliance, even under ideal circumstances, let alone in the Rosenbaum's confusing and duplicitous house of horrors. It's an age-appropriate milestone for a two-year-old child to begin exerting independence and autonomy, something Jennifer would never allow. Whatever the reason, it was clear that Layla received the brunt of the abuse, and the more time Millie spent away from the Rosenbaums, the more she felt comfortable disclosing the acts of depravity that both she and Layla endured. She began disclosing to Mrs. Lambert, and then to her great-grandmother, Peggy Banks. When she got, she would sometimes get spankings with a belt, and I said, why didn't you tell your Nana? She said, because Jennifer told me if I told you about the spankings, I'd get worse spankings. Did she ever mention anything else that um, occurred in the home? Uh, she at one time mentioned, well, she wouldn't eat certain foods from me. She wouldn't eat any kind of potato baked or scalped or mashed or otherwise. And I said, why? What's the matter with potatoes? You eat french fries. And she said, one time Jennifer had made her eat some nasty tasting potatoes and it made her sick and she threw it up and then Jennifer made her eat the throw up. When she told you that, did you ask her any, any more questions or let it be? That was enough. Okay. Did she ever mention anything else that occurred in the home? Um, let me ask you this, did she ever demonstrate anything that went on in the home? Oh yeah, uh, yeah, she said that Jennifer would grab them by the arm and twist. And Miss Lambert had told me that Millie had a fracture. Can't talk about what Miss Lambert said, okay? All right. All right. Uh, so we're just going to talk about what Millie said. Okay. Did Millie tell, tell you anything else? She said that she would knee them in the stomach, and she she demonstrated it. If I can do it without falling down, she went mm, right in our tummies. While still in the hospital waiting room the day that Layla died, Jennifer was quite stoic, insisting that she simply couldn't cry anymore. Joseph was described as very emotional and openly weeping. After being notified of Layla's death, Jennifer was most concerned with Millie and wanted to know how she could regain custody. More than likely, Jennifer feared that Millie might tell the truth the longer she was outside of her immediate control. She then began trying to control the narrative stating she was concerned for Millie if she were placed with family or her previous foster home as she was blaming a combination of them and life-saving efforts for the condition of Layla's body. The only problem with that explanation was that Jennifer had slowly and systematically been cutting the children off from their family visits with a multitude of excuses. She explained that the bruising on Layla's back occurred when she improperly utilized the Heimlich maneuver as well as the force in which she performed CPR. Additionally, paramedics began life-saving measures on Layla, as well as an additional 30 minutes from ER doctors. She wanted investigators to believe that those heroic efforts explained the extensive bruising and injuries to Layla's underweight body. Because of Jennifer's prominence in the community, her political aspirations, and her affiliation with the Henry County District Attorney's Office, Henry County had to recuse themselves from the investigation or even prosecuting the Rosenbaums. Instead, they turned the entire case over to neighboring DeKalb County. Henry County was most concerned that members of the DA's office had gone out of their way to help Jennifer gain custody of the children and that those actions might constitute a conflict of interest or show a politically motivated bias. In fact, the night Layla died, Jennifer had been recognized in the ER as a prominent political candidate by then-county coroner Donald Cleveland. Let me ask you this. Do you ever uh, attend board of commissioners meetings? I don't attend them personally. However, on uh, I do watch it on uh, the internet. Okay. Have you ever seen um, either Ms. Rosenbaum or Mr. Rosenbaum at any of, the, uh, any of the meetings that you watch on the internet? Yes, Ms. Rosenbaum would come to the meetings and during the public uh, speaking session, she would get up and voice concerns. 
And what were your what were your thoughts when you saw Ms. Rosenbaum uh, giving those public uh, public concerns? I applauded her young young age and tackling the county. So, as a result of Layla's tragic death, her defects caseworker Samantha White, along with her supervisor Tamara Warner, were both immediately terminated. A few weeks after Layla's death, both Jennifer and Joseph were arrested. The arrest affidavit stated that Layla was starved and beaten for months and that she ultimately died from blunt force trauma from either a fist or kick to the abdomen with such force that it lacerated her liver. The new injury to Layla's liver was in addition to the earlier laceration, which was already in the later stages of healing. In addition to those injuries, Layla ultimately died from blood loss from a transected pancreas, which had been wholly ripped into two separate parts. Jennifer was charged with murder, aggravated assault, child cruelty in the second degree, and with two counts of child cruelty in the first degree. Joseph was charged with two counts of child cruelty. However, after Layla's autopsy was completed, prosecutors upgraded the charges against both of them to 49 separate counts, including malice murder and torture. The Rosenbaum's defense attorney, Corrine Mull, believed that the prosecutor's office was overcharging Joseph in the hopes that he would cut a deal and testify against his wife. She insisted that Jennifer was only charged because of a political vendetta against her due to her public and vocal criticism of local government. You will hear that at times she could be critical and outspoken against politicians and that eventually she sought to run for office against an incumbent who was very much liked. She sought to run against him and that did not please the powers that be. You will hear that Jennifer did not hide her views and did hesitate to speak her mind. She made enemies in Henry County government. She criticized her opponent. She criticized the police chief of Henry County and referred to some officials as corrupt. This is not how you make friends. Jennifer is young and she saw herself speaking truth to power of trying to change what she perceived to be a culture of corruption in local government. As a result, when this accident occurred, there was no shortage of folks to relish her comeuppance. Her political opponents set out to make sure she was painted in the worst light possible. This fervor took on a life of its own, and as the evidence will show, the police, three DA's offices, and the press all rushed to judgment. The Rosenbaum's trial began in July of 2019 in DeKalb County, Georgia. During the trial, Jennifer was no longer seen as the savior she purported herself to be. Rather, she was finally unmasked as the true monster that she had so conveniently hidden behind her beautiful facade of caring and kindness. But that wasn't the only unmasking. The trial also revealed the repeated failures and apathy of the very individuals whose primary job it was to protect the children whose care they were entrusted. The repeated and egregious failures by the numerous mandatory reporters were also revealed throughout the trial and only served to compound the tragedy of Layla Daniels' short and sad life. During District Attorney Daisha Young's opening statements, she described the Rosenbaums as, quote, liars, abusers, and murderers. She told the jury that Jennifer saw herself as a saint, selflessly giving of her own time and energy exclusively for the benefit of others. But everything that came out of her mouth was a lie. She lied about the children attending counseling. She lied about them attending daycare. She also lied about how the children received their injuries. She lied about everything and to everyone except for Joseph. Joseph knew and saw the truth firsthand. He had a front row seat to her depravity and bore silent witness watching the torture and abuse of two innocent little girls, meanwhile standing by and doing nothing to stop it, making him just as complicit and culpable as Jennifer. The evidence will show that they are abusers, liars, and murderers. The evidence will show that Jennifer Rosenbaum beat 
beat Layla Daniels and she beat Millie Place unmercifully. We don't know if she kicked him, if she stumped him, or she punched him, but we know she did something to him to cause extreme damage. And Joseph Rosenbaum sat by and did nothing. Just let it happen. And that's why they are sitting here before you today. And the tears of a Well, the defense still insisted that Layla's death was an accident, and the entire trial was due to a political vendetta. They had other defense strategies planned as well. Defense attorney Corrine Mall told the jury that she would prove that Layla sustained most of her injuries from life-saving efforts, which were improperly applied by Jennifer, paramedics, and ER doctors. The only problem with that tactic was that Millie Place was still alive, and she still remembered the most heinous events and would eventually testify about the abuse. The defense intended to prove that Millie was subjected to influence in her testimony by the adults around her. They alleged that she was unduly influenced by others to believe the Rosenbaums were horribly abusive, and thus that she created false memories. They alleged that the child psychologist was hired by the prosecution and used to prepare Millie to testify in a false manner. And if that didn't work, they were going to insist that Millie was a horrible liar who shouldn't be believed or trusted to tell the truth. With each witness, they asked if Millie had a problem with lying. Millie's adoptive mother and Nana, along with her therapist, all testified that Millie told age-related lies to get out of tasks, such as brushing her teeth or doing her homework. Millie was officially placed and adopted by her new mother, Amanda Harrell, when she was six years old. Amanda had previously adopted both of Millie's two younger sisters shortly after their respective births. Now, when Millie first came to live with you, um, what kind of child was she? Um, sweet, energetic. Um, you know, we she had trust issues. She had a very hard time just trusting almost anything. Um, I think rightfully so. Um, she um, loved being with her sisters and was great to you know help take care of them. You know, per se. Um, you know, she would have some attention-seeking behaviors. Um, I think coming now, all of a sudden, being back in the oldest of two, and um, you know, just wanting to have my attention. You know, at times, and as I think a typical six-year-old will do, they'll get it any way they can get it. And what kind of things would she do to get your behavior? Um, she would just. Um, you know, wouldn't maybe do something when I asked her to do it, or um, if I would tell her to go brush her teeth or get in the shower or, you know, pick up her clothes or her toys. Um, or she would tell me she did do those things. And then I would, you know, of course, come to find the clothes still on the floor or her toothbrush was dry. Um, you know, things like that. Amanda Harrell was a very effective witness, explaining how she followed the advice of the child psychologist allowing Millie to share her trauma at her own pace and in her own time, never interjecting her own opinions or personal judgments. Have you ever asked her directly about what happened at the Rosenbaum's? No. And when Millie would make these statements, would you ask her questions? No. What exactly has Millie told you about what happened to her at the Rosenbaum's? She's, um... I think mentioned four different things that had happened. Um, one of them being that um, she and Layla would get in trouble if they fell asleep in the car and they would receive spankings if they, um, they would get in trouble and or receive spankings if they ever fell asleep in the car. Did she tell you anything else? She said um, at one time she wasn't doing something fast enough so Jennifer twisted her ankle and sat on her. And when she told you this, did you ask her any more questions? I didn't because I don't, I have no information as to what happened. And I, I mean, never having, you know, a child this age, especially a child with trauma, I didn't want to ever make it worse. I didn't want to make her talk about something because when she would make these statements, it was a one and done. She would say it, and before she could finish that sentence, she had already changed the subject. And it was clear she did not want to talk about it. And what was the the fourth thing that she told you about? Being okay, uh, thinkings, um, but she had said, um, 
at one point she um, that she was forced to eat mashed potatoes until she vomited and then was forced to eat the vomit. The prosecution was able to shut down the defense allegations with their direct witnesses. But their most damning witness was Dr. Laura Darasaw, the medical examiner with the Georgia Bureau of Investigation. Dr. Darasaw conducted Layla's forensic autopsy, and her injuries told a horrific story of ongoing torture and abuse. Layla had 22 separate injuries to her head and neck, with 11 additional injuries to her torso and multiple injuries noted to her legs, as well as three broken bones, an untreated broken rib, an untreated broken arm, and her broken leg. Uh, the very significant findings was that on the external surface, and you saw those in the overall photographs, was that Layla had numerous bruises on many parts of her body, um, ranging from and extending from her head all the way down to her legs. Uh, the most prominent uh, bruises were on her back, and that involved generally or actually the entirety of the back for the most part, extending from the neck all the way down to the butt area. Um, in addition to all of the external injuries, there were very significant internal injuries that involved the abdomen. The organs inside her abdomen were injured, and those were the liver, the pancreas, the supporting tissues of the small and large intestine, which are called the mesentery, those were injured. Um, because of those injuries, there was internal bleeding. And in addition to that, she had a lot of bruises on her head that were identified not only on the external surface, but when I reflected uh, the scalp. Dr. Darasaw was a compelling witness, explaining that what Jennifer believed was Layla choking in her high chair was actually a terminal seizure from blunt force trauma and shock from blood loss. Terminal seizures are quite frequent with head trauma. They're quite frequent with various types of trauma where you have blood loss. And so as you have blood loss, your body is starting to go into shock um, because blood is not flowing in the vessels, supplying oxygen to all your organs but your body is going to shock, you're losing blood. And those are the type of things that cause these seizures as one is dying. Um, and so the whole scenario and events that I have reviewed are a description of a child that is going into shock as opposed to as a child that has a foreign object such as food in this particular case the um, suggestion was that she had choked on chicken. Um, the description is not consistent with that at all. Is the description that she gave consistent with um, the internal injuries uh, that you observed at autopsy? Yes, absolutely. So what I observed and what I've previously um, testified to is that the autopsy, at the time of autopsy, I identified significant blunt impact trauma to the abdomen. There was a liver laceration. There was a laceration of the pancreas. The laceration of the pancreas actually separated it into two pieces. And there was internal bleeding. And so given those findings that I found at autopsy, the description of everything that was happening is quite consistent with the fact that she had this trauma, and then these are the symptoms of the trauma. She's starting to have a seizure, her head is falling back, her eyes are rolling back, she's not breathing very well, and then this could be considered, oh, choking type thing because she's gagging, she's not breathing, she's having seizures. These are all things that are expected and commonly seen with people that have uh, trauma and are losing blood and are going into shock, and then, as in this particular case, she eventually died. Based on Layla's injuries, Dr. Darasaw believed that Layla's fatal injury happened less than one hour prior to her time of death, which meant she was likely already dead at the time of the 911 call. Jennifer explained away all 22 of the head injuries as being caused by Layla jumping on the bed and striking her head repeatedly on the upper bunk, thus causing all 22 bruises and abrasions to her scalp. Dr. Darasaw also explained that the amount and location of bruises would make that impossible, especially the bruises to both ears and both sides of her face, which were more consistent with abuse. While all of Layla's injuries were concerning, the fatal injuries came as a result of blood loss from blunt force trauma. Dr. Darasaw did not believe that any of the CPR efforts 
could have contributed to Layla's death because she was likely already dead when paramedics arrived and dead bodies cannot actively bleed or bruise. During the autopsy, she found over 15% of Layla's entire blood volume in her stomach cavity, which is inconsistent with life. She also testified that the broken rib in Layla's back was older than 10 days and could not have been a result of Jennifer incorrectly performing the Heimlich maneuver. At Layla's age, ribs are very pliable and bendable. It would have taken someone exerting extreme pressure and squeezing of the diaphragm to fracture a back rib in a two-year-old child. Well, let me ask you this. Did you um, get, when you did the examination, did you extract any blood from Layla's abdomen? Right at the examination, Layla had blood in her, free blood in her abdomen. Uh, that means that she was bleeding internally from injuries that were identified at autopsy, and I did collect that blood and I measured it. I'm going to show you states 457. Is that the, um, the blood that you collected from Layla? Uh, yes, that's in a measuring cup and it shows that there was 150 cc's of just free blood in the abdominal cavity. And roughly how much, uh, how much would that have been of her blood from her body? So for a child of this age and weight, she probably had about a liter of blood circulating in her body. Um, 150, and that makes the math easy. It's about 50% of her, a liter is 1,000. This is 150. That's 50% of her blood volume was in her, free in her abdominal cavity. Layla also had an older healing lacerated liver, as well as a newer laceration that likely happened within an hour before her death. Liver injuries of this type are commonly found in blunt force trauma from car accidents or direct hits. The other thing I saw, though, in addition to all these acute injuries uh, in other areas of ventricular liver, was evidence that the liver had been injured before. I saw some features of a healing uh, of the liver tissue. I saw a lot of um, iron macrophages that was... So I saw evidence that she previously had injury to the liver, um, and that at least from all the historical information that I received, I never had any type of medical attention of the liver injury before. So this was an injury that had gone un, uh, unseen by any medical doctors, but I identified, hey, this liver's been injured before. There's a lot of iron injuries. This started to heal, which the body will do. And then I saw this very acute liver injury that accounted for the blood in the abdomen, um, it didn't happen 10, 15 minutes ago because the body is already ready to react to it. The sinker feels there. The liver cells are dying. And so she had evidence of an acute or fresh injury. And I previously mentioned maybe an hour, then maybe 40 minutes to a little over an hour. And then something old, maybe a few days old, a couple weeks, maybe a week. Because Dr. Darasaw was able to date most of the injuries, she was definitive in her opinion that none of Layla's injuries could have been three to four months old or occurred before she came to live with the Rosenbaums. Now, do you see liver, um, liver injuries frequently in the context of child abuse? Yes, in the context of inflicted trauma to children, yes. Um, the most common type of injuries that you see in what would be referred as child abuse is head trauma. Uh, then abdominal trauma is the second most common, and with abdominal trauma, the liver is one of the organs that is frequently injured. Now, did you also make any findings regard to Layla's pancreas? Yes, I did. And I'm going to show you what's been admitted as states 459. What are we looking at in states 459? <coughs> For orientation purposes. Here you can see the cut edges of the ribs as they extend down into the abdomen portion below the diaphragm. This is a liver up here. Uh, it's to our left here in the picture, but the liver sits up in the right. Um, I held up the liver a bit. On the opposite side is the stomach, and I held the stomach up. Because the pancreas is an elongated organ that sits um, somewhat right above the, the vertebrae, and it's behind the stomach, it's behind the liver, it stretches across there, um, and it's it's an organ that's one piece, it's, it's one organ. Uh, so the 
pancreas kind of would extend right along here, from about here to there. This is one half of the pancreas, and this is the other half of the pancreas because it was injured and it was lacerated until it separated into two pieces. Layla's body also showed signs of malnutrition. Photos of the two-year-old prior to being placed with the Rosenbaums depicted a chubby-cheeked toddler with sparkling blue eyes. The photos of Layla just a few months later showed a thin, gaunt child with dark circles under her eyes. It was a startling comparison. Dr. Darasaw determined that Layla's manner of death was homicide and effectively put an end to the Rosenbaums' assertion that Layla's broken bones and other injuries occurred prior to the placement in their home. Almost four years had passed between the time of Layla's death and the Rosenbaum's joint trial. In those years, Layla's mother, Tessa, had given birth to two more children, one in late 2015 and another in October of 2016. They were both adopted by Amanda Harrell. Initially, Peggy Banks fought hard to adopt Millie. She was able to get a waiver from her age-restricted retirement community, allowing Millie to reside in her home for up to two years. But eventually, she realized that the best thing for Millie would be to live with her other two sisters in the same home. At the time of the trial, Millie had been living with her adoptive mother and sisters for approximately 18 months. She was seven years old when she testified and had forgotten many of the details surrounding her time with the Rosenbaums. But there were a few memories that the now seven-year-old would never forget. Was there a time that you lived with Jennifer and Joseph Rosenbaum? Yes. When you lived with Jennifer and Joseph Rosenbaum, did anyone else live with you? Layla. Who's Layla? My sister. Uh, was Layla older than you or younger than you? Younger. When you lived with Jennifer and Joseph Rosenbaum, how old were you? Five. Five? And do you remember how old Layla was? Two. And when you lived with Jennifer Rosenbaum, what did you call what did you call Jennifer Rosenbaum? Miss Jennifer. Miss Jennifer. And when you lived with Joseph Rosenbaum, what did you call Joseph? Do you remember? No? No. Okay. So when we're talking in court today. Um, when I say Miss Jennifer, you know we're talking about Jennifer mm -hmm. Rosenbaum? Okay. And when I say Joseph, I'll be talking about Joseph Rosenbaum. Okay. Mm -hmm. Does that, that work for you? Mm -hmm. Yes? Yes. <laughs> Throughout the trial, Jennifer and Joseph sat in the same positions, in the same seats at the defense table. On the day that Millie eventually testified, they switched seats. Jennifer moved to the end of the table where she could look directly at Millie. In her original seat, Jennifer was blocked from the witness stand by a podium. This forced Millie to be in direct eyesight with Jennifer throughout her testimony. When asked to discuss the abuse, she would look at Jennifer and immediately lose her train of thought. This move appeared like an intentional defense strategy, especially because they moved back to their original seats after Millie left the witness stand and remained that way for the entirety of the trial. Now, when you were living with Joseph and Jennifer, would you take a bath, a shower, something else? A bath. A bath. And when you took a bath, did you take it with Layla or by yourself? With Layla. And would someone be in the bathroom to help Layla take her bath? Yes. Would Jennifer help you and Layla take baths? Yes. Um, would Joseph ever help with the baths? He helped with Layla's baths. He helped with Layla's bath. And how come you didn't help with your bath? I don't know. Could you do your own bath? Yes. Um, how about, could you dress yourself when you were living with Jennifer and Joseph? Yes. What about Layla? Could she dress herself? No. Um, if Layla couldn't dress herself, um, who would help Layla dress herself? Jennifer. Would Joseph ever help Layla dress herself? Yes. The defense later asked the judge for a directed verdict, 
as to Joseph Rosenbaum, which is a procedure where the judge decides on the spot that the evidence against one or both defendants is inadequate to go to a jury. However, the prosecution was able to use Millie's testimony to establish that Joseph had to have been aware of the ongoing abuse of the girls, when during bath time, their injuries wouldn't have been hidden by clothing. When Jennifer was talking loudly, um, who would she talk loudly to? Me and Layla. And how come she was talking loudly to you and Layla? Because she was mad. <laughs> and how come she was mad? Let me ask you this. When, what would Jennifer get mad at Layla about? A lot of things. A lot of things? And when Jennifer would get mad at Layla about a lot of things, what kind of things were those, Millie? You can turn and look at me over here a little bit. What kind of things would um, Jennifer get mad at Layla about? Millie, um, you said Jennifer would get mad at Layla about a lot of things. Um, do you know what those things were? I know that she got mad at her for a lot of things, but I don't really know what they were. Okay. And when um, Jennifer got mad at you, what did she get mad at you about? Me not getting dressed fast enough. Millie, when you wouldn't get dressed fast enough and Jennifer was angry, what would happen? I would get a spanking. And when you would get a spanking, um, where on your body would you get a spanking? On my butt. And when you got a spanking on your butt, what did Jennifer use to give you a spanking? Her hand. Would Jennifer use anything else to give you spankings? A belt. Would Jennifer use anything else to give you spankings other than a belt and her hands? No. And when Jennifer gave you spankings with a belt, um, where would you be in the house? In her room. And when Jennifer would give you spankings in her room, where would Joseph be? He would be like all over the house. He would be all over the house? Um, would he be in, would he ever be in Jennifer's room? when you got spankings? Yes. What did Joseph do in Jennifer's room when you were getting spankings? Nothing. When did Layla ever get spankings? Yes. And who gave Layla spankings? Jennifer. And what did, um, on what part of Layla's body did she get spankings? Same place. Same place as you? Mm -hmm. Is that the butt? Yes. Is that the butt you said? Yes. And when Layla got spankings, what room did Layla get spankings in? The same room. Is that Jennifer's room? Yes. And when Layla would get spankings in Jennifer's room on the butt, what would Jennifer use? Same things. Is that the hand and the belt? Yes. When Millie was asked why Jennifer got mad, she didn't want to answer and kept looking over to Jennifer. The prosecutor then gently reminded Millie to look back at her and then moved her position slightly to block Millie's line of sight from Jennifer. Once Millie could no longer see Jennifer Rosenbaum, she was able to answer the questions without intimidation and with much clearer recollection. Would Joseph ever spank? No. Would Joseph ever spank Lee? No. Now, what would you get um, in trouble about at Jen and Joseph's house? Let me ask you this one. What um, kinds of things did Jennifer not want you to do? I'm going to ask you a different way, okay? Was there anything, did you ever go on car rides with Joseph and Jennifer? Yes. And when you went on car rides, was there something that you weren't supposed to do in the car? Sleep. How come you weren't supposed to sleep? I don't know. Oh. 
when you went on car rides with Joseph and Jennifer, what were the things Layla wasn't supposed to do? Yes. And what were those things? Sleep in the car. Was there, what would happen if you slept in the car? We would get a spanking. And did you ever get a spanking for sleeping in the car? Yes. Did Layla ever get a spanking for sleeping in the car? Yes. And when you got the spankings from sleeping in the car, where were you? What room did it have or place? In her room. You said her room. Is that Jennifer's room? Yes. And did Joe know about you not did Joe know you weren't supposed to sleep in the car? Yes. Now, how did the spankings feel to your body? It hurt. When you got the spankings to your body, uh, were your clothes on or off or something else? Sometimes they were on, sometimes they were off. When sometimes when you got spankings, would the belt touch your skin? Yes. Now, when Layla got spankings, were her clothes on or off or something else? Same thing. Same thing. Um, when Layla got spankings, would the belt sometimes touch her skin? Yes. While the prosecution was able to establish that Jennifer had abused the children with a belt, it became clear that Joseph was a silent witness to the abuse, never participating himself, but never intervening either. When Millie was asked how Layla hurt her leg, she stated that it was gymnastics, but couldn't recall how she knew that information. On the day that Layla died, Millie recalled going upstairs and watching Paw Patrol at Jennifer's direction. She stayed upstairs until Jennifer told her to come down and they went to the hospital together. How do you feel about talking about the day that Layla died? Kind of sad. And how do you feel talking about um, living at the Rosenbaum's house? Same thing. Do you like talking about living at the Rosenbaum's house? No. The defense cross-examined Millie for almost 40 minutes, showing her numerous pictures of her and Layla while they lived at the Rosenbaum's. They repeatedly asked her if she had fun or was having a good time in each photo. The purpose was to get Millie to remember the happy times while she lived in their home. But the tactic was having the opposite effect. Millie's trembling voice indicated that they were anything but happy times. The defense also tried to establish that some of the injuries to Layla's head could have been inflicted by Layla herself from hitting the ledge on the bunk beds. The tactic seemed to backfire as Millie increasingly became withdrawn and stated that she couldn't recall many of the events. Now what is this a picture of, Millie? The bunk beds. Okay. And did you all like playing on the bunk beds? Yes. Did you jump on the bunk beds? Sometimes. Sometimes. And sometimes, who, you slept on the bottom. Did sometimes Layla jump on the bottom bed as well as the top bed? She only jumped on the bottom. On the bottom bed. And several times, isn't it true, Millie, that she would bump up against this, correct? Against this ledge. I don't remember. Do you remember her saying that her head hurt when she bumped her head on the ledge? No. Do you remember Jennifer telling you not to jump on the beds? No. She told you it was okay to jump on the beds? Did she tell you it was all right to jump on the beds? No. No, okay. Tell me about what is in this picture, Millie. A train set. And what kind of a train set is that? 
Some blocks. Blocks. Did you like playing with that? Yes. And what do we see beside the train set? The TV. Okay. You had a TV in your room? Yes. And were you allowed to watch it? Yes. When were you allowed to watch it? Were you allowed to watch it any time? No. Were you allowed to watch it in the mornings when there were cartoons on? I don't know. It seemed outrageously cruel for defense counsel to repeatedly show Millie picture after picture of her or Layla at petting zoos, festivals, birthday parties, or having their faces painted. It certainly didn't elicit any evidentiary value, nor did it do anything to exonerate Jennifer or Joseph. The defense called a series of witnesses who were close friends and staunch supporters of the Rosenbaums, each insisting that Jennifer and Joseph loved both girls, each believing Jennifer and Joseph were the real victims of a corrupt political vendetta, and each shocked when shown photos of Layla and Millie's battered and bruised bodies. One witness even cried and said she no longer supported or believed Jennifer. Joseph's mother, Mary Rosenbaum, was also shown photos of Layla at the time of her death and became extremely emotional. She appeared surprised by photos of Millie with bruises to her neck and back area. Up until that day, she wasn't aware that Millie had also suffered any abuse at all. Prosecutor Daisha Young passionately gave her closing arguments, asking the jury for a measure of justice for the senseless torture and tragic murder of little innocent Layla Daniel, a tiny girl who from birth was routinely passed off from family members to acquaintances and at times to strangers, only to land in the same institutional foster care system in which her own mother was raised never breaking the cycle of neglect, addiction, or abuse. Tessa believed the worst thing that could happen to her children would be to end up in a foster home with someone she didn't know, and that is exactly what happened when they landed with Patricia Lambert. But Mrs. Lambert did care. She worked tirelessly to love, nurture, soothe, and heal dozens of children in the decades she fostered children. She even tried to save Layla Daniel from the home Tessa considered a blessing someone from Tessa's past who wore the mask of empathy and kindness, someone who not only fooled Layla's mother, but also fooled friends, neighbors, caseworkers, doctors, district attorneys, and even a judge. But eventually, Jennifer Rosenbaum's facade crumbled around her, and the resultant damage was the senseless death of a beautiful two-year-old girl who never experienced the stability of a nurturing and loving home that she so deserved. The jury convicted both Jennifer and Joseph Rosenbaum on over a dozen charges each, even though Joseph never actually struck either child. In the eyes of the court, his silence and complacency equaled responsibility. Judge Amaro withheld the same grace and mercy at sentencing that the Rosenbaums denied to Layla and Millie in life. He was outraged by the comments made by Joseph's family, blaming the death of Layla on her biological mother's addiction which he alleged was the cause of the girls being placed with the Rosenbaums in the first place. My name is Michael Rosenbaum. I'm Joseph's father. Uh, I don't have a piece of paper on that in front of you, so I'm not prepared for this statement, but please be uh, lenient. I know this all could have been prevented if the biological mother and the family it started when that child was born, it starts with them. That's the first step of responsibility. This all could be prevented if they would have took that responsibility and not diminished themselves with drugs and alcohol. That's a sad thing. Alcohol and drugs are bad. But just please, uh, minimum sentence if whatever minimum and PSCF and diabetes. Just if just please have the state take care of them and, and, and suicide watch. I don't want to take his life. 
Judge Amaro wasn't happy that Joseph's family glossed right over the tragic death of a two-year-old during their statements. Never once recognizing the cause of Layla's death was the direct result of both Joseph and Jennifer's conduct, even daring to go so far as to blame the tragedy on the addictions of both parents. Other family members made similarly inflammatory and disparaging remarks, believing the convictions were a miscarriage of justice. Mary Rosenbaum alleged that prison would kill her son, who already suffers from a life-threatening fatal disease, never acknowledging the killing of Layla Daniel in the process. Judge Amaro addressed those allegations during his sentencing remarks, making it clear who the real victim was. Let me just also add uh, that it is deeply frustrating for the court to hear family members of the defendants quarrel with the verdict that was rendered in this case. This case was carefully tried, and I'm deeply concerned of the lack of recognition on behalf of the defendant's family of the scope of the tragedy and of the cause of the tragedy. I've lived with this case for a long time, too. I will tell you that it is one of the worst, most horrible crimes and outcomes that anyone could ever experience or dream of experiencing. And so I just want to say that I feel for deeply gained by your loss, and I hope that you will somehow find a way to recover. Jennifer Rosenbaum was sentenced to life without the possibility of parole, plus an additional 40 years to serve. Given Joseph's health, he was given the equivalent of a life sentence, receiving 50 years in prison to serve 30, plus 20 years probation. Layla Daniel was buried at the expense of the county. For two years, her grave was nothing more then an unattended patch of dirt, abandoned and neglected in death, just as she had been in life, until two former police officers took it upon themselves to install a 120-pound stone marker with a custom carving of a little girl on her knees in prayer with the words that read, In God's Care. Layla Daniel was finally at peace. <laughs>